This morning, we are setting out with Jesus in his final week. We are uh, moving our way through this series that we've been calling the Irreligious Jesus, where we've been looking at these stories from Jesus' life and ministry that have put him into conflict with the religious leaders of his day. And we've seen that Jesus both fulfills the longings of the religious establishment, but also simultaneously subverts them in ways that the religious leaders of the day did not appreciate. And today we're going to zero in on another one of those stories, the sort of climactic story that begins the last week of Jesus' life that we call Holy Week. And what makes uh, this week holy is not that we have it off of school or, or work, but the fact that it's an invitation to step into Jesus' life and to see the beauty of the love of God that Jesus makes clearly known to the world in his death and resurrection on our behalf. And so I want to, this, this story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, which some folks have called the triumphal entry, reminds me of a story. It's less of a story, more of a corny joke, uh, a corny illustration. Uh, and so that's where I'm, I tried to avoid it, but it, here we are. And uh, some of you might be thinking, you know, wh- <laughs> what's new? Uh, starting in a corny place. But I think what's, what's new is, or what's different is that I'm telling you, I'm acknowledging that I realize that this is corny. So here we go. There's a story of a great flood that took over a city. And a man who was a faithful follower of God believed and hoped and prayed that his God would save him. And so as the flood waters rose to Uh, into the first floor of his home. He stayed and waited as many people made their way out of the, the flood area. And somebody came by in a canoe and said, hop on in, we'll take you to safety. And he said, no, 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 my God will save me. And they said, suit yourself, and just canoed right on past. Floodwaters continued to rise to the second floor, when a rescue boat drives up, sees him, offers to carry him away to safety, and he says, no, 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 my God will save me. Floodwaters continue to rise. He's now on the roof of his home. A Coast Guard helicopter zooms in, sends the rescue ladder down, and he, sa- he waves them off. No, my God will rescue me. Story continues that this man wakes up in heaven. He sees Jesus and he's like, Bro, what the heck? I thought you were going to rescue me. 
And Jesus is like, bro, canoe, rescue boat, Coast Guard helicopter. And this corny story raises a compelling question about our expectations, about what our salvation, what our rescue is going to look like. And if we would even recognize it if it came to us. So the question I want to explore this morning is, am I rejecting my rescuer? Am I overlooking? Am I pushing back on? Am I stepping away from the very gifts that Jesus may have offered for my rescue? So this story this morning comes from one of the biographers of Jesus, one of his closest followers named Matthew. And Matthew uh, has been almost setting up the first 20 chapters of his biography of Jesus' life to zoom in on these last days and moments. And this story here kicks it off. So Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. As they, meaning Jesus, his disciples, and the crowds that were following along with him, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Then Matthew adds in, as a narrator, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah, who writes, say to the daughter of Zion, which is a name for Jerusalem, see, behold, look, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. The Greek word here is seismos, from where we get the word seismic meaning earthquake and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So there is a whole lot happening here. And it can be boiled down into simply saying that Jesus here makes a scene. Jesus sets up a bit of performance art. It's a spectacle that Jesus coordinates and arranges so that 
the people who have been following him around, including this large crowd from the town of Bethany, where he, last week we looked, raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Now, all these huge crowds have been following him. They swell to their biggest size as Jerusalem itself increases in size for the Passover festival. So there are tons and tons of people around. And so Jesus goes to one of the gates of the city and sets up a parade for himself. And it's interesting because in this moment, Jesus, who has for 20 chapters of this biography of his life, has insisted upon people not claiming that he was the true and proper king of Israel, the Messiah. At one point, he tells Peter, his, his most caffeinated disciple, to not tell anyone who I am. And in this moment, he creates this whole scene where crowds are shouting, here comes the king. And it's a bit like, oh, what is going to happen? And what are they hoping and expecting that this king, this rescuer, is going to be about and going to do? And so we have to kind of zoom in on what's happening in this scene to explore a little bit more of what it means. And a couple of things about this scene that we need to understand is that this moment right here, and what's going to follow, begins all the way back in the beginning of the story of the scriptures. Because you see, in Genesis 1, when God creates humanity in God's image, beloved and beautiful, God empowers humans to rule the earth on God's behalf, faithful to God, embodying justice and love in the world. But human beings reject this call and this opportunity and this vocation, thinking that we know how to run the world on our own terms. Thank you very much, God. See you later. But God, being love, will not allow humans to run the world in ways that are influenced by idolatry, putting things in God's place, because all of that will lead to injustice, which leads ultimately to evil and sin and death. And so God has to create some distance and separation from humanity, from this vocation, but God is always longing to restore humans to their true potential, to what they have been created to do, which is to rule the world in love as God's cooperative friends and, and establishing flourishing in culture and arts and every industry so that the world and human life can properly flourish, that justice can be achieved, that righteousness can be embodied. This is the call, and this is something that God has not and will not give up on. And so God calls a people through Abraham and Sarah to reestablish, to get this plan back on track, to be his covenant partners. He makes a deal 
in with his own body and blood so that the, these people can live in the way that God had intended them to live. And God promised that one day somebody would come who could embody the fullness of justice and righteousness and rule the world and rescue the world from the unholy trinity of sin, evil, and death. And so as you read the story of the Bible as it unfolds, in every generation you're asking, is the one going to come now? Is it Abraham? No. Abraham fails. Is it Isaac? No. Is it Jacob? No. Is it Joseph? No. And so the story, as we follow through in the book of Genesis, ends with the reiteration of this promise, and it goes like this. Genesis 49, 10, and 11. The scepter will not depart from Judah, meaning the, 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 the royal uh, power and privilege will not depart from God's people until he, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Now get this. He will tether his donkey to a vine. And he will wash his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Let the reader understand. So who is this person? So the story continues. Is it, is it going to be Moses? No. Is it Joshua? No. And then ultimately we get to the point, this almost high watermark in the story of the Old Testament where King David sort of emerges as the one who might properly restore God's rule over all of creation and all of the nations to come streaming into Jerusalem where he establishes the kingdom of God. And there's this moment where you think, oh, is it David? And ultimately, David fails, but God, in God's faithfulness to God's people, reiterates and doubles down on his promise to David and says, there will come one from your family tree who will, who will rule over Jerusalem and the world. And ultimately, things kind of descend into chaos and destruction, and God's people end up in exile in Babylon. They're there for 70 years, and they begin to make their way back to Jerusalem where their temple has been destroyed, and everything that they loved is, is somehow marred and, and broken. And, and one of the prophets named Zechariah, who Matthew here quotes as Jesus fulfilling this promise, he prophesies. He, he, he has meditated on the scriptures and is influenced by the Spirit of God in this way that he imagines that this figure from, from Genesis 3 and Genesis 49, this one is going to come and he is going to return to Jerusalem riding on a donkey, bringing victory to God's people over the nations. And finally, ultimately, this king will rule and kick all of the yucky pagans out. 
And so in this moment, Jesus steps in to the longings and the expectations of generations of people. And he boldly steps forward and says, it me. I'm the one you've been waiting for. It's the long-awaited return of the king. And so the crowds are shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David, the royal priest king who is going to kick out all of the pagans and restore the rule of God's people over the nations. And all of the nations are going to come flocking to Jerusalem and just behold the power and majesty and awe and goodness of God that comes through this king. Hosanna, which means save us. Save us. But we can already begin to see that there's this undercurrent in this prayer, in this cry, that really really what is being cried out for from these people who are waving these palm branches. This is, if you're, if you're new to church, this is not, we're not decorating for spring break here, longing to be uh, in some tropical paradise, but these mean something. <laughs> well, what do they mean? Why were they waving palm branches as he comes in? Well, 200 years before this moment, there was another person who came riding into Jerusalem. The person wasn't on a donkey, he was on a steed. His name was Judas Maccabeus, and his nickname was The Hammer. And Judas, The Hammer, came into Jerusalem under a procession of people waving palm branches to wipe out the pagan influence that had corrupted the temple and defiled the land of Israel. He waged war. And so these palm branches are the people saying, hey, if you're the one, do that again. Do that again as military jets fly over. Do it again. Do it again. And, and, and just, to, just to sort of bring this a little bit closer to home in, in some ways that are, that are uncomfortable, Jesus sets a parade that reveals the expectations of the people, of the type of rescuer that they were looking for and who they were looking to be rescued from. And they wave palm branches, which can be looked at in one of two ways in our moment. It would be like a parade in which people are waving Confederate flags. That would mean something. That would say, this is the type of rescuer we're looking for, and this is the type of thing that we're looking to be rescued from. Or, to not just pick on one side, it could be like waving of the pride flag. This is the type of liberation we're looking for. And these are the types of people we're looking to be liberated from. And Jesus steps into the tension 
of this. N.T. Wright helps us see here. He's a church theologian and historian. You see, the people wanted a prophet. We want a savior. But this prophet would tell them that their city was under God's imminent judgment, which he does in chapter 24. They wanted a Messiah, but this one was going to be enthroned on a pagan cross. They wanted to be rescued from evil and oppression, but Jesus was going to rescue them from evil in its full depths, not just the surface evil of Roman occupation and the exploitation by the rich. Precisely because Jesus says yes to their desires at the deepest level, he will have to say no or wait to the desires that they are conscious of and expressed. Once you invite Jesus to help, he will do so more thoroughly than you imagined and more deeply than perhaps you wanted. So really, what we see here in these cries of Hosanna is the people saying, save us from them. Save us from them. That's what salvation means. That's what they think, that's what they expect that it means, that Jesus is going to set up the kingdom over against them, saying that vindicating the people of God saying, you're right and they're wrong and I'm here to back you up. But you see, both the pagans and the Pharisees, the religious and the irreligious, both have rejected Jesus as their king. And that's what sin is. Sin, ultimately, is the rejection of Jesus as king, Jesus as the ultimate authority and ruler over our lives. And this whole scene not only is foreshadowing Jesus' rejection, but is cloaked in a backdrop of rejection. Already right here in Genesis 49, he will wash his garments in wine, his, blo- his robes in the blood of grapes. That's metaphorical language for actual blood. It's rejection. Zechariah chapter 9 talks about the return of the king to Jerusalem, but it continues on to chapter 11 where the king is rejected by the people of God. This whole thing is, is colored with the impending rejection of this king, of this Jesus, because not only does he fulfill our deepest longings, but he subverts them in ways that are uncomfortable to us. Because Jesus refuses to be controlled or co-opted by what we expect of him. And there are two ways, my friends, that you and I also reject Jesus. There's the one hand, 
is a popular idea right now, especially if you grew up in the church or have walked away or are not a follower of Jesus. There, there is a, a, a popular level conception that the thing that we most need salvation from in the modern world is the idea that we need salvation at all. We don't need anyone to come and save us. As a matter of fact, there is no one to come and save us. We are the help that we're looking for is the response that many people would give to the idea of salvation today. We don't need salvation. Or if we do, actually we need salvation from the sort of religious fundamentalists and their political policies that are oppressive. That's what we need salvation from. And we need to move away from that. But on the other side, the other temptation to reject Jesus is by assuming that because we are following Jesus, because we are living good and upright and moral lives in the way of Jesus, then somehow in some way God owes us. God is going to vindicate us. God is going to say, hey, 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 actually, you're right. My hands are tied because you've done it all the right way. And you know what? After all, I, I am, you know, we, we sort of imagine, or this, this mindset imagines God providing the them in this equation as the sort of secular progressive. We need, that's who, in, in our mind, we need to be saved from is, is these secular progressive policies that have removed God from the equation and are trying to enforce those sorts of ideas upon us in, in politics and culture. That's what we need to be saved from, and we expect God to save us from them. And both of these approaches actually ultimately undermine and reject Jesus as king. Because while some of them get pieces of either side of it correct, ultimately it misses the whole broader picture, which is that Jesus is authoritative over all of life, over the entire world, and over the whole of your life, and is going to defy some of your categories, and is going to push back on your expectations of who he is and the type of salvation he's going to bring and who he's going to offer it to. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Jesus accepts you. Jesus accepts you knowing that you will reject him. Jesus accepts you knowing that you will reject him. Jesus parades his way into Jerusalem knowing that he has a date with the cross. He knows. He embraces this rejection. He embraces the refusal to allow him to be king. Why? Why? In doing this, Jesus wants to reveal to you the heart of God. That Jesus wants to reveal the nature of self-sacrificial, other-oriented enemy-embracing 
community-creating love on the cross. Jesus endures rejection by humans so that humans will no longer have to reject God. Because when we see the goodness and the beauty and the love of Christ crucified, who says there is nothing that you can do to earn the goodness of this love that is for you, that is going to descend into death with you to bring you back out into eternal life as a free gift of grace that is going to fill you with the power of forgiveness so that you can accept the people who have rejected you, so that you can hear with the ears of faith the people in our time who are crying out, save us, and you can be with the people who think that they are the them. This is why Jesus comes to the cross to save us. It just happens in ways that we don't expect. And it happens on a deeper level than we'd ever imagine. Because the great enemy that Jesus is saving you from is sin and death and evil itself. And by rejecting God, you are going to find your way into that place as God gives you over to your desires. And those desires are ultimately going to end you up in a place that you are going to experience as hell because it's going to be separated from God, not because God has separated himself from you, but because you have separated yourself from God. And Jesus moves toward you there in the words of Zechariah, which Matthew reiterates here when we see Jesus on the cross. Behold, Your king comes to you humble, willing to endure rejection so that you might experience grace and forgiveness and restoration and so that you can participate with Jesus in the reconciliation and renewal of all people everywhere. So a way we could think about this is that because Jesus' death on the cross, the sort of key in which we cry out Hosanna changes from save us from them to instead save us for them. Jesus, save us for them so that we can be the people who embody your love to people who might reject us. Save us, Jesus, so that we can be the people who do not reject anyone because they don't agree with us or look like us or vote like us. Save us for their sake, Jesus. This is what the whole thing has been pointing to all along. God says the one is going to come to rule over all of creation. And so God's people got confused and they thought that it meant they were privileged in some way. But God's choosing of a people was always for the sake of the whole world. And this is the invitation to you and to me. To be rescued is to join in the rescue mission. 
It's not just to sit around and hear and be grateful for all of the ways that we have been rescued, but is to go into the world that is in desperate need of being rescued and say, your rescuer has come. Behold, behold, your king has come to you humble. So the question, my friends, is, in, in terms of how do we live this out, whom have you rejected? As a result of rejecting Jesus, we are always and inevitably going to end up in broken and fractured relationships with other people. But being restored in relationship to Jesus is going to restore our relationships to others through the process of grace and forgiveness. So whom have you rejected and how might, you, how might the Spirit of Jesus this morning be inviting you to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to them? Or maybe the emphasis on this this morning for you is, who has rejected you? Who has rejected you? That you need to extend that same mercy and forgiveness of Jesus that Jesus has extended to you, to them. Behold, your king has come humble and riding on a donkey. Amen.